This is Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. Despite his modesty, Craig Sholto Douglas has a very important job. Our natural world today is in a state of extreme stress. Overpopulation and the removal of natural habitat over generations has forced us to rethink the way we manage the land. Having studied at Rhodes University, Craig returned recently to the Eastern Cape to take up the post of ecologist at the beautiful Kwandwe Private Game Reserve. Listen here as he explains his role and the hopes he has for the future of the Eastern Cape and our natural environment. It makes for a fascinating insight into the crucial work of professionals like Craig. Enjoy. Craig, what a pleasure to meet you today and what an opportunity here at Kwandwe, uh, beautiful Kwandwe Reserve. Do you know what, ever since I've started my research, I've wanted to meet an ecologist and actually find out what you do. I've been told you are a very important part of this process. So in a nutshell, what does an ecologist do? Afternoon, Dean. Thanks for coming. Um, great to chat to you. Uh, it's a, a difficult question. Uh, whoever said I've got an important job, I'd love to know who it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, it's. Uh, I think it, uh, being an ecologist varies a lot, um, you know, depending on where you are and, and kind of what your portfolio is. Um, in, in the context uh, here at Kwandwe, um, it involves things like conservation management, um, land restoration, rehabilitation, um, and, and generally reserve management but also the planning and the and the analytical side of things behind the scenes to kind of work out how we try and and replicate as a naturalist system and balance as possible so um, for example managing the genetics of species managing the security and surveillance of rhino and, and endangered species that that may be persecuted um, making sure that we have the sort of right amount of, of species within each guild to kind of perform the ecological function and um, making sure that we're not overstocking and replicating some of the, the issues of the past in terms of, of overgrazing and overutilization of the landscape and trying to actually promote a sustainable regenerative um, environment that can kind of sustain these wildlife and wilderness areas for, for future generations. So it's, uh, it's very broad but um, you know there are a lot of technical aspects within it all but uh, I guess that's kind of it in essence. Well, what a fascinating job, and it sounds very important to me, that's for sure. <laughs> How did you get into this, Craig? It's uh, surely a lifetime of study, and you, you're a young man, so how, how did it all come about? Thank you. Um, yeah, it's been a while since someone's called me a young man, so I appreciate that. Uh, no, I've kind of always had a passion for, for wildlife and for I've always had an interest in the botanical side of things and, and, and Africa's natural landscapes, and, and I was fortunate enough growing up to spend a lot of time in in wilderness areas, um, you know, with with animals and plants and birds and everything, and um, so it's kind of been a passion. So I studied um, at Rhodes University in in Makanda um, uh, up until my master's level. I did my masters actually, which was based in Adoelafa National Park, um, and uh, after I finished that, I, I started doing some ecological consulting work and um, kind of got into the the, the sort of mainstream conservation um, space and. I had re five really good years up at Pinda Game Reserve in, in KwaZulu-Natal, um, which is a, another really diverse landscape and, and learned a, a lot there and kind of just the thing with with this kind of work is that you you'll never stop studying because you you always you always learn more you learn things every day and so it's um it's just been a, a kind of i guess a continuous learning process that's always kept me interested in 
in the ecology and how things work and behave and interact together in these in these wildlife wilderness areas. And what brought you back to the Eastern Cape? Uh, the Eastern Cape is a special place. Um, I spent a lot of, of my, well, I spent all my university years here and I have a lot of friends and family and um, it's just such a special, unique part of the country. Um, we, we're very fortunate in the Eastern Cape that we still have these massive areas and we have the opportunity for expansion of conservation landscapes and um, I think the, the kind of uh, low uh, human population densities uh, gives us huge opportunities uh, to, to make meaningful impact um, in the conservation uh, sustainability space um, and so so you know on top of that you also have this incredible biome that that we find in the eastern cape you know this this thicket biome and specifically on Kwanwe the this the fish river valley thicket and it's uh, at a at a first glance uh, it can look like quite a short um you know monotonous vegetation type but it's got some incredible plant diversity and uh, really high species endemism and num- number of species that are only found in in this sort of area and um it's just a kind of area that you keeps you intrigued and interested the whole time because uh, there's something around every corner that you can learn from and uh, it's just a, a really great place you were telling me earlier that uh, this particular biome, this thicket, is very durable, but it has a, a, a level at which you can only abuse it for so long. Tell me about the history of how we um, perhaps over-farmed this area, took it for granted, and now we're trying to recover what, what that damage was. Yeah, so when you look at this vegetation type, it, it doesn't get very tall in most places. We do have some really tall valley thickets in the deep valleys, but generally speaking, it's sort of three to five meters in height, um, and and pretty much everything in that is palatable, and it's also accessible to animals because it's not very high. So you've got basically like a, a big forest that's been squashed into an accessible, palatable layer of cake. And so, um, you know, without the knowledge that we have today um, a lot of our predecessors who had other land use options in these areas and practices things like small stock farming they kept putting more and more animals in and said oh guys this is incredible like we're not seeing any you know environmental degradation or damage and and they pushed and pushed and pushed and and getting to your point you know that there is a threshold and um, unfortunately in 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 close to a million hectares within within this this vegetation type we've got severely transformed or degraded um, landscapes where that threshold or tipping point has been reached um, and uh, we've lost complete ecosystem function we we've only got the remnant canopy species so the big woody trees remaining but all those other layers of vines and creepers and rare and endemic succulents and forbs and grassland components are, are gone because um the microclimate effect of those of those th- those closed systems is is now become bare ground, and and the soil has become capped and caked and hardened. So when the sun you know, bakes on the soil, we get erosion. We don't get water infiltrating into the soil, and we kind of lose the natural function of these these thicket systems. And unfortunately, there are there are a lot of areas where where that's happened in the Eastern Cape, um, but but thankfully you know we 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 have we kind of learn it's taken us a while but we're getting there we're learning how we can we can start restoring them and trying to bring them back into their former glory but um, it doesn't happen naturally once they've crossed that threshold and it's gone into that transformed state 
without actually going and, and anthropogenically or mechanically altering those conditions, it goes into kind of a, a, a stagnant state of, of very low nutrient availability, high erodibility, um, and then really low productivity. So, but, but there is hope we can, we can change things. One of the most visible aspects of this restoration project that you're involved in, of course, is to bring back the animals, reintroduce the animals that were ha- perhaps here before. Is there an argument that, that you should only reintroduce the original animals, the indigenous animals, to a certain part of land, or um, are we being too precious with that? Because I've heard, you know, uh, people refer to books like the Skeed book, which tells us, the, you know, which animals roam this, this region before people arrived. And the, and the argument is we should only stick to those kind of animals. But we know we're in, a, in an era of tourism. Certainly wildlife tourism has played its part. It's brought a lot of funding in for these schemes. And people want to see those um, iconic animals that perhaps weren't um, originally from here. What are your view on, views on that? It's a really interesting question and one that I think gets debated quite a lot because we have, um, you know, the, the so-called extreme conservationists um, and, and, and I'm a huge believer and, and, and really respect the work that Ski did. It's an incredible piece of work. Um, I think it, it comes down to the context of, of what your kind of property's goals are, what you're managing for is, is conservation high up the list of, of what you're trying to achieve on, on your property. And um, my personal take on the matter is that um, you know a lot of these areas have been transformed to certain to different states. So yeah, I think uh, it comes down to a, a, lot of, a lot of the time to what you're managing towards. Uh, if you have a you know, high priority for conservation of a specific a specific species and um, for example white rhino which some may argue never occurred in this area you know we, we're looking at a species that we've lost more than half of the world's remaining white rhino in the last 12 years so is there an argument maybe that if we have land that now is conducive to carrying such a species and protecting them and we have the resources available to do that you know, th- there's a there's a kind of case study that that, in my opinion, I think they do really well here, and 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 we have a good argument to to kind of try and protect them. I think where where it gets um, at a at a more scientific level, where it gets uh, I think a little bit more tricky is. Uh, what extra limitals or species that didn't naturally occur here um, you would have on your property and, and, and at what density and what impact would they have. So, um, you know, we, we have a vast majority of the animals, for example, on Kwandwe are indigenous species and, and we pride ourselves on, you know, making habitat and, and protecting habitat and improving habitat to, to have as many black rhino, critically endangered black rhino as possible. But at the same time, as you mentioned guests would like to you know coming to Africa would really like to see a giraffe which some may also argue are are not indigenous to this area so my opinion is is you can have giraffe and we know that we can have giraffe at a certain density without having you know a a negative ecological impact but if we had an overstocked amount of giraffe or too many giraffe we know the species because we've done the research we know the species of trees the boskias the shepherd's trees that would start being impacted by by too many giraffe because potentially they didn't naturally occur in this area so I think it's a fine balance and I think if it was left unchecked we might make more problems like 
happen, you know, um, in, in previous decades. But um, I think that you've got to find that balancing act of of having sustainable ecotourism, having a world-class product that attracts people from the, around the world to our beautiful province, to these beautiful places, but to make sure that that however it all fits together, we 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 improving the ecosystem. We we're not going backwards by having these extra limitals. Yeah, no, it's fascinating, but. Looking at the management of land, a lot of the land is in private hands and it's been driven by the private sector, arguably, this this movement towards conservation and rewilding. When we actually fa- uh, fence land, though, Craig, we're effectively restricting the natural migration of animals. Part of your job, I believe, is working out the carrying capacity of an area of land and which a- animals coexist. How do you do that? That's like playing God, isn't it? Uh, yeah, to to a certain point, I guess it is. It's um, it's a necessary evil, unfortunately. We we really wish we were living in a world where we didn't have to fence out areas and we could have these expansive open systems where you would have natural genetic migration. Two new cheetah would come in and kill the single male who was the father of the previous litters and mate and and you know have that genetic recruitment. Same thing for things like lions and elephants and you know. We, we have to fence things off because we have a lot of people that live in this world and human-wildlife conflict is, is a very touchy subject and, and obviously people need to have a livelihood and in a lot of places fences have had to be put up to keep humans and animals separate and and that's something that in South Africa we've done very successfully um, if you look at the numbers of endangered species things like rhino that are protected in these uh, these fenced off private reserves and um, they're, they're increasing it's it's kind of where the core of, of our rhino are left in in these kind of systems but it does then require this this management aspect and and quite intensive management because if we leave things unregulated and we let the male cheetah continuously breed with his offspring and the next litter we're going to have things like inbreeding and, and genetic problems and I'm just using cheetah as an example it goes for everything if we let lion numbers you know get too big on a reserve we're going to have no prey and uh, the the other animals are going to are going to start struggling if you have too many elephants and it's left unregulated they're going to just change and alter the the habitat so everything else there won't be food available for a lot of the other species so it's not necessarily playing god the way i like to look at it is um we're trying to replicate natural systems as much as possible and so we use a lot of data a lot of information from literature from a lot of forums that we sit on at local scale at a regional scale at a national scale and even in an african scale where we sit down with people who are all doing the same thing and are dealing with the same problems and we try and replicate what would happen naturally as much as possible and so part of that to to kind of come to the crux of the question is is a carrying capacity and and what we call our stocking rate and carrying capacity and that um houses a very fluid model that, that we've put together and we we adapt continuously. Um, we're in a semi-arid area, so it responds really well to rainfall, and um, and obviously we have 
droughts and dry seasons and so we we have to manage for that those fluctuations and so we we kind of look at how many animals we have of the different units we have our kind of bulk grazers things like buffalo uh, waterbuck zebra and then our concentrate grazers or selective grazers like um, our wildebeest and then our browsers at different height classes and we have to separate these all out and we have to do all the vegetation assessments to work out well how much food do we have available in each of these classes under different conditions whether it be drought good rainfall seasonality into account and then we manage conservatively within that so that we make sure that we have enough of of everything so that the animals aren't in a drought scenario restricted to to the game reserve and cannot migrate somewhere else where there is rain um, but the, the the reserve will will still have enough food to sustain them and so um we we're very fortunate here that we you know with with land coming on board and the reserve being of a significant enough size it's a lot lessly intense uh, less intensely managed than than smaller reserves and the smaller the reserve the, the more intensively you have to manage that we, we have enough space here that we don't do too much of that kind of stuff the animals of most species have found a sort of equilibrium where you know they can nat- naturally have calves and recruits um, and and you sort of half of them might get to adulthood and half of them might become prey to things like lion leopard cheetah or hyena um, whereas others you know might struggle through a, a drought so the, these things are adaptable and um and and the stocking rate is more of a a checkpoint for us you know i think we 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 believe that we've got a really good system and it's as, as naturally sustaining as it can be in in this sort of semi-arid environment but a, a, a kind of vegetation condition assessment which we do every second year and and putting that into our stocking rates and carrying capacity model that gives us a checkpoint well you know are we are we improving or or you know with this density of animals in the different classes is is the vegetation going backwards and and that's a it's a really good indicator for us to use as sort of a baseline of to to kind of check ourselves you know are we are we managing the property um you know sustainably it's an incredible job that you do and as you said it involves a lot of discussion you learn from each other you don't work in isolation um, you, you bring in expertise when you need it, and as you said, you learn almost on the job, you know, trial and error, I should imagine. So on previous episodes of Frontierland, I've had guests on, and we've been discussing this issue of rewilding, opening up tracts of land so that animals can migrate naturally as they did in the past, and obviously you understand the uh, environmental benefits of that. Here in the Eastern Cape, is this a viable prospect, and um, how do we go about doing this? Yeah, I think um, I think if there's anywhere that it's a viable prospect, it's in the Eastern Cape. I mean, uh, there there are places that are in advanced discussions about joining properties and expanding reserves and building wildlife corridors. And um, you know, I think because we have the space, the uh, the possibilities are are endless. I mean, there's really is a scope for. Uh, a lot of a lot more area under conservation or protection um, for 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 wildlife and I think that these things take time and you know we we've got to also consider the politics and the different objectives of different landowners or you know when you have um, 
uh, government or state-owned or parastatal reserves, um, you know, working with private reserves, sometimes the objectives are, are different and these things will take time to kind of uh, meet, uh, you reach an equilibrium where everyone's on the same page, where it benefits everyone to drop those fences. Because as we were talking about earlier, you know, the bigger an area, the less intensely managed it needs to be. Um, so I, I really do think that in the Eastern Cape, you know, we 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 close already on on a number of you know properties and aspects where where this this land expansion thing is is realistic. And um, I think that once that starts, uh, I think we'll probably see a snowball effect where we can really, you know, um, exponentially increase the amount of, of area for for our, our natural wildlife. One of the concepts that's increasingly discussed is the idea of carbon credit. Can you just explain for our listeners what that means in simple terms? Yeah, so, you know, we spoke earlier, there's about a million hectares of, of degraded uh, area that used to have speck boom in it in 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 the eastern cape running sort of from uh, the fish river um all the way through towards jansenville um you know uh, it, it's it's a it's a massive massive area um and uh you know the only way we can restore these areas is to actively go and alter the soil profile to get soil function back in to get water to go into the soil to get things to grow and we're very fortunate that we have this plant called speckworm which um, helps us with a lot of the problems that we've had in the past you know we, we can plant it in dry areas um, it, it although it grows slowly it's it's got a really good survivorship rate when you plant it um, and uh, you can plant it at scale because there's so much of it um, that, that's existing in the system as long as it's harvested sustainably from from our intact or healthy healthy vegetation units and so we can use this in a lot of places to sort of get that first phase of uh, ecosystem function back the speck boom will create shadows and shaded areas where where things can start you know having that microclimate where they can start growing and the the, the roots of the speck boom will start breaking that soil allow water to infiltrate in instead of just run off and cause erosion and you know the growth of those plants will create shade for seeds from rainfall events or from birds that can then start germinating so it's it's kind of that first phase it, it gives us that first phase of being able to start restoring some of these degraded systems but obviously all of this kind of stuff costs a lot of money and um, with with the, the kind of re-emergence of, of the carbon market um, and carbon credits it, it, it could be a viable um, financial tool to to kind of facilitate a lot of these restoration projects and to restore a lot of these degraded areas. So, so in essence, landowners will be now rewarded and paid for managing their land this way. Yes, I mean, if you if you took a, for example, a, a degraded piece of area that used to be part of a speckworm-dominated environment, and you successfully grew speckworm and you know brought back some of the other canopy species, whether that happens naturally through the alteration of the soil and the conditions, or whether you plant it and um, there's this debate about that but if, if you got if you, if you went through the process of registering a kind of project like that and you you grew it like you would any other kind of crop um, you you could be incentivized or you you would be incentivized to to restore that land into into a functional state um, through through carbon credits it is possible yeah 
fantastic stuff. Yeah. I think we're looking at the future here, and I think uh, with people like you at the helm, we've got every every um, reason to believe this is going to be is going to work here. We're we're living in exciting times here, aren't we? We are. Yeah. Thank you so much for your for your time. I know you're busy. You've got to get back out in the field and get this work done. Thanks <laughs> sure, for your time. Craig. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Dean. That was Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. For more podcasts, visit algoafm.co.za.